Welcome back to Cause and Tone of Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 Season 5 episode, Phoenix Rising. So this episode, I think, is probably where Season 5 gets its uh, less than spectacular uh, reputation. Uh, it, it's all because the Byron story ends in such a way that I understand exactly what Jameis was trying to do. Didn't have, I don't know if it was the budget or the time or what have you, uh, but boy does it come off as cheesy and one-note and uninteresting. We were building to a point, and then it ends in such a meh way. Uh, I think the best way to explain this episode is this episode is about on par with Grey 17 is Missing. Uh, it is not a completely bad episode, but boy, it has its moments uh, of just pure stupidity. At other times, it has good ideas. Uh, and so there's not a whole lot for me to talk about this episode because it just, it's completely uninteresting. What could have been a great climax to this uh, ongoing story of the telepath situation, and this is something I like about this series, is that not many series would have the balls, uh, in my opinion, to set up an idea that we know through future hints that is going to happen in this world, but not actively show it. The telepath war is coming. I know some people complain, why didn't we see it in season 5? No, that's not the... This is a denouement. This is, the entire point of Babylon 5 was a five-year look at an ongoing world. This world is living and breathing, and it had moments before the show, and it will have moments after the show of great importance. We don't need to see everything. We're just seeing a five-year chunk. All of this is, you know, effectively the first shots that would lead to the situation known as the telepath war, as alluded to in Deconstruction of Falling Stars, but it doesn't need to um, be shown to us. It just We just need to see all the stuff leading up to it. To me, I, I think that's an interesting idea, and uh, it was certainly a risk JMS took doing that with displeasing fans, and I appreciate what he was trying to do. The problem is, of course, is that, well, this ending to the telepath situation is kind of, at many points, contrived, at other points, silly... It, it, it's very, very much just a lackluster ending to what could have been. I think the biggest problem with this episode is all that final scene with Byron. Because uh, until then, it's the increased ac escalation. Uh, you know, the the uh, the revolutionaries are scared, backed into a corner, so they're taking the fight. There, the Psychor is having an increased presence on Babylon 5. You know, shit's going down. Of course they were going to take hostages. It was inevitable. Uh, they're full-blown terrorists at this point. Uh, they fail to see that they are sending the wrong message, and that's Garibaldi's entire point to them, as we saw in the excerpt from De De Deconstruction of Falling Stars, which we see here. And it, it's a decent build-up. It's, um, it's a bit quick. Um, uh, but it, it's suitable. Uh, the, the problem comes with that final bit with Byron, where, of course, Bester, because he has a personal stake in this, because Byron, uh, used to be a psychop, 
Uh, and as far as he's concerned, he betrayed the family. And, that, and that's reiterated multiple times throughout this episode. And it's something that uh, I have, uh, I think, mentioned before with Bester. Is that he truly, honestly believes in everything he espouses. He's an idealist. An idealist with a very twisted ideology. He truly believes telepaths are superior in every way to humans. And as such... They are a family, and they must overcome and endure and eventually take over. And so to have someone like Byron, who is, you know, just as powerful as him, who should understand just as much as him why mundanes don't matter, uh, the, the, you know, uh, to betray the Psychor that way is a personal insult to him. The irony, of course, is that Bester is really pissed off at Byron for betraying the Psychor when when he himself betrayed the Psychor in the name of love. Byron did it in the name of trying to make a difference in trying to avoid conflict. Um, Bester did it out of love. And that's the twisted thing about Bester is he truly, truly believes he is in the right. Everyone else is wrong. That's what makes him scary as a person and scary as a villain. And why you love to hate him. And that and that comes back later in the Garibaldi section, but I will get to that in a minute. The Byron stuff, you know, uh, him being an, an ex-psychop makes perfect sense. I've pointed out multiple times how, how much he is full-on Bester, but slightly different. The, the two sides of the same coin sort of thing, the Londo and Shakara style. Of, there, you can tell he's got a pure superiority complex he's got the bigotry there from the psychor that the telepaths are truly better and more superior but he doesn't want to engage in violence it's sort of this dichotomy where he can have a just cause but still be an awful human being at the same time we often look at revolutionaries at people who make uh, changes great changes to our world and idolize them Look at the way we treat the founding fathers of the United States of America. Being American myself, you're taught to revere uh, these people as though they're godlike, as though they're mythic. I was told the George Washington cherry tree story when I was a kid. That ain't true. It's completely false. It's fabricated. But it perpetuates the myth of his character. That he was this great, wonderful general who changed the world and uh, provided all this great stuff and all the freedom you have, even though he's a general who lost more battles than he ever won uh, and, you know, owned slaves and was not exactly the nicest person. But he did set, you know, set in motion what we have today in terms of America. Not perfect, but certainly, uh, you know someone to study and understand and that's what we have with byron is a very very flawed revolutionary someone who doesn't quite have the capacity to overcome his own prejudices but wants to in some way instill the idea that those prejudices can end with him uh and uh his big scene where he you know the the Psychops attack and, and Byron, uh, you know, tries to martyr himself uh, by pointing the 
PPG at the, the, you know, the fuel tank, which of course this entire situation had to take place in the fuel tank area, even though we've never seen this area be applied before. It makes sense that if it exists, but it's kind of out in the open and seems rather um, ill-tended to, <laughs> just personal opinion. Uh, and uh, it it's all very convenient, and it, he wants to martyr himself, and it makes perfect sense why he would do this. But it's also incredibly dramatic. And then the way he go he takes Lita aside and talks to her for like a full minute and a half of like, I love you. Don't, don't, don't let this change you. Blah, 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 blah. Now go. I'm going to kill myself. This entire ordeal. He Everybody's just sitting there watching him. He's the only one with a gun at this point. They could just walk up and disarm him. Like... What's going on? Like, why watch him commit suicide? Like, it's so dumb. It is cheesy. It is full-on hammy, theater-style, uh, you know, acting and scene, scene composition. It could have been done so much better. And I understand exactly what JMS is trying to do. Because the name, Byron, Byronic Hero, uh, you know, this is, you know... He he is supposed to be this romantic person who uh, is tortured, and there's supposed to be a uh, romanticism of that that torture of that uh, um, of the pain, the uh, the embracing of pain as a, a as a fire to forge. Basically, that that is what the Byronic Cure is. It's a literary archetype, and. So he wants to have the big romantic death for this character to make a grand statement. Uh, but it doesn't work. It's so dumb. And you're just sitting there like, why isn't anybody doing anything? What's going on? Why are they just sitting there? And it just keeps going and going and going. And then, of course, he sings the song and then shoots the, the fuel and it kills everyone and blah, 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 the end. It just does not work. Um, this could have been done in numerous different ways. Um, and I'm not sure if it's the lack of budget or what. Because the lack of budget does rear its head in this episode. Like when they bring out the, uh, the telekinetic who was injured a few episodes back. And use it to ward off the, uh, the exact security team. Like... Because of the lack of budget, because Babylon 5 was never a high-budget show, like, the telekinetic is flinging around bed prans and what looks like plastic crates. Why would that affect a full security team in body armor? They just should be able to walk right past. They had helmets on, they had body armor. Like, that shouldn't be a problem for them. And yet it acts like, like they're, they're being assaulted by a Gatling gun or something. It's ridiculous. And uh, it, it's kind of that situation where the ambition and the idea of Babylon 5 and what it wants to do and what it's trying to say is a bit too ahead of its time. Uh, and at times that rears its head, as I've mentioned many times before, the times, uh, especially during season one, there was a lot of CGI attempts that just didn't work as well as there was one particular one in season two, the Gropo episode. Uh, and so like, it, it's something you just have to deal with, with Babylon five, but 
this scene, like this entire episode, should be rewritten in a way that is more cohesive and interesting. Um, the real good bits of this episode all come from Bester's personal interaction with Lockley and then Garibaldi. Uh, his scene with uh, Lockley, what I love about it is that it all ties back into something I said back at midnight on the firing line. Uh, there is no easy answer to the side core. There never will be. Uh, you know, uh, they are victims you know, uh, the telepaths are victims being put into this horrible, horrible program that brainwashes them and turns them into fascists. Like, it is not a good thing. But at the end of the day, like, there has to be some sort of way to police the telepaths because this isn't just a situation of different color of skin, which is what racism is based on. This is a literal power that has the ability to invade privacy, to affect people both mentally and physically. Like the the man who has an image in his head that's so terrifying he would claw his eyes out if he wasn't put into a straitjacket. Just to give an example, like, there has to be some sort of accountability for the telepaths. So what do you do? Do you let them go free and live out their lives, knowing very well they could take, uh, you know, they could take advantage of this kind of power? This kind of power can be easily abused or misused in ways that are harmful to the general public. Do you regulate and police them as they are now, and leave it in a way where uh, they are effectively an oppressed minority uh, and are persecuted? for who and what they are. There is no middle ground here, and that's the problem. As as uh, Bester says to Lockley, who, who says, I don't agree with anything you do, but I understand that, uh, you know, I needed your help. And, and, and he's like, we are necessary. You know, without us, you have chaos, and there is no way to predict chaos. So you bring order to chaos, basically. That is a, that's his idea. It's not perfect. It's not glamorous, and it sure as hell ain't the right decision. But what is the right decision in this kind of circumstance? There is none. Uh, you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. Uh, and I understand uh, perfectly why Lockley does not feel comfortable with this. The Psychor is unquestionably evil, and yet there is no other option. What is she going to do? Uh, you know, as I mentioned last time, it is, you, do you take the chance of letting everyone die, or do you take the chance of only letting a few die? How many do you accept? How many deaths do you want on your hands? So she tries to take the path of least resistance, and morally that is questionable, and she understands that, but that's the problem with this situation. It's very similar I may cover these someday, but the uh, Mages in Dragon Age, uh, a wonderful game series by Bioware, uh, brings up a very similar concept, uh, because the Mages in that world, uh, by using magic, uh, which comes from another realm called the Fade, they open up their bodies to demonic possession. Uh, so they are in effect a class of people persecuted and policed because of who and what they are, but for good reasons. So do you let them just 
run around freely, knowing that they could at some point get a demon and start killing people? Or do you police them and turn them into an oppressed minority? What do you do? There is no good option there. And those games hammer that home again and again and again, especially in Dragon Age 2, is that there is no right answer. And right here, right now, in the telepath situation with Babylon 5, we have the exact same thing going on. The scene between Bester and Garibaldi is great, uh, because it, it's showing just how full of himself Bester is. He's always been that way. Uh, but I love in that, that train car situation, you know, uh, conversation they had back last season he talks about how he's not capricious he's not cruel uh you know he'll he won't kill garibaldi he'll give him all his memories and let him go and yet that's the worst thing he could have done in the most horrible and cruel and sadistic thing he could have done and then here he has put an asimov into his brain which haha nice reference but uh that basically means that garibaldi can't actively take revenge on uh, Bester. Because, of course, Bester knew exactly what he would do. He knows Garibaldi. He's known him for years. And so that it's effectively a form of psychological warfare and torture that he's doing to Garibaldi. And it, it's, it's completely understandable why Garibaldi starts drinking again. He's already been an alcoholic, and we know that he turns to alcohol in times of great despair and uh, in stress. And this right here is the icing on the cake. He's just watching a man he hates who fucked up his life and then let him go with no way to recover it. And then comes back into his life and says, oh, accountability, eh, who gives a shit about it? He has just watched everything he believes in go up in flames. So of course he turns to the bottle. It's sad and it's true. And I honestly feel so sorry for Garibaldi right here. I don't think he would have actively shot Bester. Because I think Garibaldi is a man who understands full well the ramifications of his actions. And I think he would have thought about shooting him. And he may have given, uh, given him a warning shot or actively hurt Bester. But he wouldn't have killed him. Because he knew the situation was already tense with the telepath. He knew it would have gotten worse if he had done this. He's also now representative of the Interstellar Alliance as a whole. Uh, you know, uh, being the intelligence officer. Which means, guess what? Every action he has is political and drives a point home. So he has to care, you know, carefully dodge around things, even if he has a personal vendetta. Uh, so I think he would have tried to hurt Bester, but would have never actually killed him. Uh, just to get that sweet revenge and then let it go. Uh, and Bester took that choice away. Took all his agency away. Now, the only thing he can control is drinking and ultimately that's the problem is that he can't control his drinking that's the alcoholic conundrum uh you turn to it when you can't control anything because you believe you can control it yet you can't psychologically programmed that you can't uh and that is the real tragedy of this and i think those are the best scenes of this episode is watching garibaldi's slow descent as Bester does the most cruel, most horrible things he could do to Garibaldi. He even kept his rage intact. 
simply because he knew it would be enjoyable to watch Garibaldi squirm like that. He, Bester claims he is not cruel or capricious. He's a sadistic motherfucker. And he's everything, absolutely everything he says he's not. Yet he's also everything he says he is. The wonderful contradiction of Bester. He truly, truly believes that these Telebats that followed Byron and the violent revolutionaries were just lost people and that they would come back to him if they, he showed them the light. And of course, they're backed into a corner. They didn't want this. They, they, like, they weren't lost. They were truly trying to find themselves. And that caused a great deal of pain and suffering, all because he truly believes that the Telepaths are a family. We're going to get an episode entirely from his point of view in two episodes time. It's called The Core's Mother, The Core's Father. And, it'll be, and it's going to be the last episode that Bastor ever shows up in. Uh, and it'll be great to see things from his perspective. Because this is how he sees the world. And it's dark and it's twisted. But yet it has an eerie sense of sympathy to it. And that that's what makes Bastor such a wonderful person to hate. He's the monster that doesn't see a monster when he looks in the mirror. He sees a good man. Those are sometimes the worst monsters of them all. It's those who think they're good, righteous, and true. Phoenix Rising is a complicated episode. It's got great moments, like that that moment between Bester and Garibaldi, uh, and furthering Garibaldi's plotline, and you know him diving back into a drink. Uh, Bester and Lockley, but it also has some a lot of cheese. It delves into Byron's backstory, which makes perfect sense, but then ends so horribly that you're just like, what was the point of this? Like, this could have been so much better, and it's like a budget shows. It's a complicated mess, and I watched an interview with JMS not too long ago. Uh, it was from 2013. It was a relatively old interview. Uh, I think it was Icons in American television i think or something uh and the the interview uh, interviewer uh asked what he thought of season five and he said season five was complicated uh by all the behind the scenes stuff you know the, the the cancellation and the pickup from tnt and all this stuff that he had to wrap up a lot of stuff in season four before they were supposed to be wrapped up. You know, Civil War, the Earth Civil War, was supposed to last four episodes this season. So he had to, he had to elongate certain storylines or uh, insert solo episodes, like A View from the Gallery, to, you know, make the, the season cohesive. And it is his firm belief that the first half of uh, season five, which is effectively this episode, uh, you know, this episode in Backwards, is uneven it's got its moments but it is uh ultimately weak in areas where it should have been stronger but he believes the back half of the season uh is quite strong and i think that is something i ultimately agree with and i think it's this episode right here that gives season five its reputation uh you know, along with the solo episodes you know the singular non non-continuity heavy non-serialized episodes because um, some people just don't like that, um, and I think I think that is a misnomer that season five has its pluses. It's got a lot of pluses, but it's also got a lot of downsides. And this right here 
is really where it all stems from. Uh, but yeah, complicated episode and one I wish that was a lot better because it has the potential to be great, but it just doesn't. Just like Grey 17 is missing, good ideas, poor execution, at least part of it's decent, some of it's even good, but overall just a meh episode all around. But anyway, see you next time. Bye.